0: Welcome to Reflections on Buddhism on 90.7 FM KSQD Santa Cruz. Reflections on Buddhism is a monthly radio show with Buddhist teacher Tenzin Chökyi, bridging the worlds of Buddhist thought and the latest research into positive psychology. I'm your host, Matthew DeVaris, and each month we'll select a topic where we can weave together Buddhist wisdom with the science of mind, and then apply these concepts to everyday life in a practical way.
1: So I would love to welcome my dear friend, Eve Eckman, to the Reflections on Buddhism radio show. Eve, thank you so much for joining us for this session.
2: So happy to be here with you, Tenzin. Thank you.
1: You have so much to share. I just want to dive right in. So you had your initial training as a clinical social worker and worked in emergency rooms in San Francisco for many years. And then you went on to get your PhD from Berkeley. You've been a postdoctoral fellow at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine at UCSF, the director of training at the Greater Good Science Center. And now you work at Apple developing well-being programs. You're the executive director of the Cultivating Emotional Balance training program. You're also a second-generation emotions researcher, as your father is Dr. Paul Ekman, a well-known researcher in the field. So this is like a stellar, amazing professional biography, but I'm also really interested in your personal relationship with contemplative practice and how your interest in meditation and Buddhism developed beginning, I think, with the Mind and Life meeting in Dharamsala in 2000 on the subject of destructive emotions, which is kind of where the Cultivating Emotional Balance program was born. So I would love to have you just kind of walk us through your own personal contemplative and spiritual
2: journey. Hmm. Um, Thank you for the very kind introduction. Yeah, far too much uh, education, but I feel grateful to it and the uh, many doors it opened for me. Um, I really was fortunate I, I kind of grew up with contemplative science, so the field was really starting to emerge as I was starting to become more interested in, in academic work. And you're right that the Mind in Life meeting in 2000, you know, was really pivotal for me in ways I had no idea at the time. I was 20 at the time and just kind of tagging along um, very joyfully so. At that time and and prior to that, I'd say, you know, my real connection to something like spiritual practice, meaning something bigger than myself, was a connection to social justice. And so as a teenager in the Bay Area, I'd been really committed to that work. And that work really sustained me and gave me a sense of purpose and meaning. There was no value system, there were no kind of daily rituals or practice to cultivate that. It just was so clear to me that Um, life on its own, without some way to meet the suffering that I was very aware of growing up in a city environment, was just really um, tough. It was really sad. It was really painful. I uh, struggled to understand, you know, I think a a classic teenage phrase, but it felt unique to me, like, why did you bring me into this world? Um, And when I first you know, was exposed to Buddhism, it was actually quite early, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, a lot of my friend's parents were practitioners, and um, I didn't have the highest regard for the practices, you know, because there they are practicing and then, you know, losing it at us because we've done something terrible. Um, So I was like, well, whatever. Angry Buddhists. Who cares? That's not a real thing. And um, I don't think I I had like an intrinsic seeker attitude. You know, I I knew the world was dysfunctional. I was clear that um, we were living in what I would now say is a lot of delusion and projection. But I was really finding my my way through kind of living an alternative lifestyle uh, with music and art and just um, not kind of succumbing to the traditional values that I saw around me. So I dressed funny, listened to really loud music. And it was actually when Cultivating Emotional Balance first started uh, as a teacher training in 2010. And this is in Thailand, where Alan Wallace and my dad were supposed to lead 50 brave participants. We're going to be the first participants trained outside of a research study. And just a couple of weeks before the training, my dad got very sick. And I was in my first year of my PhD program and was going to attend as an observer. So I already had tickets. I was kind of the the only person available uh, who could go with such short notice. And I showed up completely unprepared. And yet it really worked out. And it was sitting there with Alan Wallace. Um, I'd meditated before and I'd read a number of texts and, um, You know, Buddhist philosophy and and ideology, but sitting with Alan every day, it really kind of piqued my interest. And from a, a rational point of view, from this point of view that, you know, what is our life insurance policy that the one that you can't just get taken away or the one that isn't vulnerable to the stock market coming and going? But what is it that you can really ensure a lifetime of support and stability and well-being and it's from the cultivation of the heart and mind and that seemed just so compelling to me just oh yeah that's definitely true because I've had situations where arguably everything is going well and I'm unhappy I, I don't can't protect myself from you know misery and despair just from the outside world so that was the real kickoff and then the uh the crowning jewel on that interest, uh, you were there, Tenzin was the 2013 training in Mexico where I became very physically um, kind of disabled by a herniated disc in my back and I was just in just excruciating pain. And through that process, which was about, you know, six months of just ongoing pain, I discovered that meditation was a real refuge. And from that point, I think it wasn't just a interest or something I did on the side. It really became clear that it was the most important thing I could dedicate myself to, that I could try to share with others. Um, And yeah, just feel so fortunate to have met spiritual friends like yourself on the path and been able to um, find my way with these teachings in a way that makes sense for me, Uh, not necessarily the way the teachings were taught thousands of years ago, or even 40 years ago.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I find it so interesting. You know, some people get interested in the science after meditating for a long time. That was a little bit my story. And for you, it was sort of getting interested and being exposed to the science. And then, like you so beautifully recount, it was really when you were experiencing the first noble truth, up close and personal that you realized, oh, there's a refuge in these practices. You know, I can't get away from this experience that I'm having externally in any way. It's totally happening, but there's a refuge in these practices. And it's interesting, you know, in, in, well, when we met in the CEB teacher training in 2013 in Mexico, and I was really coming at the idea of emotions from a Buddhist standpoint, had been trained in Buddhism. And I think some, you know, inaccurate translations had led me to believe that emotions are sort of to be gotten rid of or transcended, or there's something that's always destructive. And I remember it was just such an eye-opener for me when I really started learning about the science of emotions And, you know, in CEB, we talk so much about the function of emotions and how all emotions evolve to help us navigate our lives, to help us communicate with others. And one of the big, you know, epiphanies for me was this idea of not positive and negative emotions, but constructive and destructive. And I remember actually talking to you about the emotion of anger and kind of going, no, but anger is always destructive. And then being introduced to this idea that, you know, all emotions have a function and can all be enacted in constructive ways, depending on the impact on ourselves and others. So that was so, so, you know, I often, when I'm teaching CEB ideas to more Buddhist groups, I find a very similar kind of misunderstanding there. And sometimes I think when we're talking about emotions, sometimes the whole, uh, range of enjoyable emotions is really overlooked. Like we focus so much on the problematic ones, probably anger the most, maybe then fear, maybe then, you know, we talk about shame, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the function of enjoyable emotions, and where they fit in, because I think they really are, they can be so overlooked, because we're really trying to kind of struggle and manage the ones that feel most more problematic for us. Nobody's like, can you help me manage my joy? Yeah,
2: yeah, no, it's so true. And, you know, I think um, my dad really loves talking about just the full range of our enjoyable emotions. And, although there are, you know, many types of difficult emotions, the just range of our enjoyment is so vast, right? So we can feel a sense of accomplishment. And that's so different from feeling a sense of maybe gratitude or a sense of sensory enjoyment or pleasure, like a beautiful sunset. So it's this interesting palette. And there's actually quite a lot of great research on the benefits of experiencing these enjoyable emotions. In certain ways, they make us more available to creativity. Like we can uh, notice kind of connections that might otherwise be unavailable to us. They help us kind of strengthen bonds. So the framework that Barbara Fredrickson and you know many of her students since then have worked with is this broaden and build framework that are you know, what she calls positive but enjoyable emotions really support us in broadening our perspective and seeing new things where it's this kind of mode where we're looking around us and we're curious and we're also kind of um, building and important connections. So we can absolutely trauma bond. All of us have done a lot of that through the pandemic and before, but there's also a sense of the strengthening of connection that happens through shared enjoyment. um and not, you know, n- I mean not only, I won't say not just, you know, superficial enjoyment because superficial enjoyment is is enjoyable, right? Our our mutual friend talked about going to the water park last week with his whole nonprofit staff and that was great. He was all in for hedonia. And yet also the kinds of things that are studied in terms of strengthening connections with other people are strengthening what's called our pro-social connections right so our ability to share what we're grateful for our ability to connect and be generous and kind to one another so it's not just about being in the same room with someone else it's about the type and quality of relationships also that can bring us so much joy and in some ways are thought to be one of the functions of happiness as an emotion Mm -hmm.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Tenzin Choki is a teacher of workshops and programs that bridge the worlds of Buddhist thought, contemplative practice, mental and emotional cultivation, and the latest research in the field of positive psychology. She is also a certified teacher of compassion cultivation training and the Cultivating Emotional Balance program. Tenzin is especially interested in bridging the wisdom of Buddhism into modern culture and into alignment with modern cultural values, such as racial and gender justice and environmental awareness. She feels strongly that a genuine and meaningful spiritual path includes not only personal transformation, but social and cultural transformation as well. She loves interfaith collaboration and is a volunteer for the Interfaith Speakers Bureau of the Islamic Networks Group in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. You can find Tenzin's upcoming teaching schedule, podcast, and a number of useful resources on our website, unlockingtruehappiness.org. A friend of mine
1: recently introduced me to, um, the ideas of Vyat Pangset, this uh, this researcher who uh, is talking about like different neural circuits. And it was very much kind of like what we would call in CEB, the universal emotions or the ones that are universally expressed. And I was really fascinated. He did a lot of research on what he called the play circuit. And he's the one that found out that rats love to be tickled and actually giggle and make this like high-pitched squeak. So I was so interested in this, and I researched a little bit, you know, his ideas about this play circuit, which, of course, we tap into so much as children. And he was saying, you know, how important it is for children just to have free play that's not structured, where they like learn things like boundaries with each other, you know, exploring and all of that. So I've been kind of thinking about play in Adults, too, because we lose a lot of that ability, and I think that leads to a lot of the enjoyable emotions that sometimes we don't really kind of prioritize as grown ups. We're like, "Oh, we work hard, we're dutiful, we're <laughs> all the things and, you know we're not kind of prioritizing and just seeing the value in the enjoyable so i love I love hearing you know what is the function of of that and in this bonding and this idea of trauma bonding and yeah you know, I started really noticing how many of my conversations start with complaining about things and really trying to critique that for myself and go, wow, I don't want, like if somebody are you, you immediately launch into how everything is not going, because then it elicits sympathy and empathy, which we love too. But how can, you know, how can we maybe launch with yeah I went to the water park with my staff last week you know and we had a ball and really thinking about that yeah thank you I love that um what do you think is the most misunderstood emotion
2: I think contempt and partially just because it's just people don't know about it right it's invisible. Um, But I really love to speak to it, you know, especially finding myself now in the world of technology where I've been for a couple of years working at Apple and um, we and myself included, you know, I don't work on social media, um, but I'm more aware in general of the role of technology, not just in our life, but in how we live our life. And social media is how many of us are living our relationships. And in social media, I do think you find a lot of contempt, opportunity for contempt. So the basic definition of contempt is a a sense of superiority. I'm better than. You can think of it as the emotion that we experience when we're judging something, right? And so we think of a experience, many experiences in social media, whether it's on a kind of comment scroll Or just looking at, you know, and without commenting whatsoever, just our internal experience of, wow, gosh, I can't believe they posted that photo. Like, who do they think they are? Um, That's the nice kind of spectrum of it all the way to that person is awful and terrible and there's something wrong with them. One thing I think we misunderstand about contempt is it is similar but not the same as disgust. So when we get to the realm, which I think, unfortunately, we see play out in national, international politics of disgust, we've actually moved beyond a sense of being superior to a sense of the other person or being that we are um, kind of judging is not even in no way equivalent to us. We're dehumanizing them. With disgust, we think of them in some ways as toxic. I think contempt is also enormously problematic. And the superiority piece is is troublesome. It's different, again, than anger, where we're mad at someone, but partially we're mad because we expect something better, as opposed to contempt, where we just don't even believe that they could kind of rise up to that. And a lot of us, this is, you know, maybe a not so hidden secret, if you start paying attention, a lot of us like our contempt. We enjoy it. We get a kick. It's kind of, oh, yeah, my God, that guy. Wow. Um, It's just something that, you know, it elevates us in this way. And so I think it's misunderstood, and mostly because it's so invisible. And we might not recognize that, wow, this might not be an emotion I want to strengthen. And we're doing it without a lot of awareness, because it's so, um, I'd say, not only accepted, it's kind of, fueled by a lot of the forces in our contemporary culture. What do do you think about that, Pinson?
1: Well, you know, I'm curious also what the function of contempt, like how, why do we have it? It feels like, yes, as you've stated, can be so clearly destructive, you know, and can can cause other people to feel shame when we express contempt so wh- what's the function of contempt
2: then yeah i mean theoretically again evolutionary psychology which i just love i think it's such an interesting way for us to look at our contemporary motivations behaviors and emotions it's it's a theory right we don't have a time machine we can't go back and observe the environment of evolutionary adaptedness and You know, folks like my father and other uh, anthropologists and sociologists who observe from the outside are observing a way of life among uh, cultures who remain intact in their environment. But still, we don't quite know what happened or the conditions in which our emotions evolved. We think, however, that in that time, in this environment of our evolutionary adaptedness, that we lived in small bands or tribes, probably about 50 people, maybe 80 at the outer limit. And, you know, if you've ever even been on a group trip with family or friends of 10 people, a lot of emotions come up and issues of decision making and control and leadership. And a lot of our emotions, in some ways, help us navigate and, and work with the social demands of being in a group. So, contempt is one of those. It promotes social cohesion by, in some ways, demonstrating what is and is not okay different than anger. Anger can lead to aggression and violence. Mm. It's what's called a costly social signal.
1: Mm. Contempt
2: is meant to kind of put you in your place.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about social media earlier. The, just this morning I was actually listening to a podcast, Krista Tippett's on Being and she was interviewing Adrian Marie Brown who's an activist and a social thinker and, you know, visionary. And she, was t- she has written a book that I haven't read this book yet called We Will Not Cancel Us. Mm. And she said she was talking in the podcast about how she'd gone on the sabbatical and kind of been offline for a while. And then she came back and noticed. She- and she said, I don't know if it was worse or I was noticing it because I'd been away from social media for so long. Just this explosion of people being canceled, like one yeah. misstep. You know, and so her her idea is, wow, you're, you know, you're showing contempt and causing someone to feel shame about something you did five minutes ago. Like you just learned how to how to not do this behavior, really, like literally very recently in your own life. And then, Mm. you know, and just and she said, you know, a lot of people were coming to her going, oh, I just got canceled and people were actually having like mental health crisis, because it's not just about the one person in your tribe giving you a dirty look. It's like suddenly everybody all over the world knows this thing that you did. So, so it is really interesting to think of these emotions. Like you said, I also love evolutionary psychology and how they evolved in these small bands, but then how destructive they can be like something that could have been constructive and it evolved to save energy, for example, You know, and then everyone on the world because you did something or said something on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, and then suddenly it's not okay. And everyone knows like it's so yeah, I don't know. It's just an interesting whole area of investigation. I think how how our emotions evolved and our evolution hasn't caught up to our social changes at all, right? We're still doing the same things. Yeah, yeah. Is there one technique or strategy you'd love to be able to teach everyone who struggles with managing their emotions? Like I know in, you know, the cultivating emotional balance, the whole program is 42 hours, so Mm. many techniques, but is there one that you found in your experience, you know, teaching and kind of living your life? Mm. If there's like one go-to or something that you think would be so great to be able to teach everyone for managing with their emotions, what would it be?
2: I'm going to have to sneak in too. Okay. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> um, you know, the first one is really the, the emotional episode timeline. And so, you know, I
1: completely is... agree. I also vote for the timeline. Yes.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's amazing because I have you know, had the opportunity to teach it to so many different, populations, right? Folks uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, for example, amazing, uh, with juvenile justice officers in San Mateo, right? And with folks in luxury resort retreat centers with folks in serious dedicated practice for decades. And it has people in prison
1: uh, in Central California with me years ago. Yes.
2: It just really it has an explanatory power. That I think helps people feel empowered and um, interested in their emotions. It really slows down the process of emotion. I've, I've really been liking thinking of it as um, a way of almost bringing a microscope to your emotion. So, taking something that's very small and really seeing its inner structure in a way that really helps you understand. So, instead of just thinking, you know, yesterday I was so frustrated like that's pretty good you're aware that you had an emotion instead of yesterday sucked which is i'd say where most people yes. <laughs> are or i'm fine um or i'm stressed you know all of those are are appropriate ways to respond but what we know from the research and i think most people would discover from me search of trying it out is if we slow down and be get and can get more specific on our emotions We have greater ability to work with them, greater choice in how we respond to them, and maybe can even learn a bit of the messages that they have to share with us. So with the emotion episode timeline, it really invites us to get curious, like, okay, you were frustrated. What made you frustrated? And then how did you feel? How did you respond? The second one, I would say, is really giving people an invitation to get curious about how their emotions feel in their body we are so cognitively overriding so much of our experience. And, you know, both of us have had opportunity to learn from uh, Resma Menachem, the author and teacher about, you know, the importance of being with our difficult emotions in the body. And there's no way out of that. You can't have a worksheet, you can't have uh, a conversation, there has to be a way to start to learn to be with our difficult emotions in the body. And if we can't, be with that distress we're never going to be able to you know really work with the reality of challenges and obstacles in
0: our life if you're just joining us you're listening to reflections on buddhism with tenzin choki on ksqd 90.7 fm You can find out more about Tenzin's upcoming classes and subscribe to her podcast at UnlockingTrueHappiness.org.
1: You know, I found through this work, too, and kind of being a survivor of somebody who really wasn't very attuned to my body at all, I Joanna Macy once said, you know, I'm like a brain on a stick and I really kind of had that experience. And even recently, this big life change that I went through and the first information came from my body of Mm. like, I need to make this change. It was like an embodied, deep sense that wasn't cognitive initially that I then realized it cognitively, but it was so there's, yeah, there's so much wisdom in the body And like you say, we've got this cognitive override and it's um, it's just so exaggerated by our culture that we just grow up that way. And I found that to be really, really helpful personally with the CEB training also. And this kind of segues into the next question I wanted to ask you. And it is personal, but I'm just also wondering if you could say more about the impact of these contemplative practices in your own life like how do you feel that you've transformed the most from not only teaching obviously you not only teach these but you actually practice these transformative contemplative practices and yeah the the you know i'm just interested how you feel yeah i know your dad talks quite movingly about An experience he had after meeting His Holiness the Dalai Mm. Lama, where he really felt his anger was so attenuated for a long time. And it, you know, just even from that moment, but of course, engaging in these contemplative practices over months, years of your life. What, yeah, what what kind of changes and transformations have you noticed yourself?
2: It's funny because it's not just, you know, like a, a hobby like something that you do when you have free time, it, it really does transform how you prioritize what you do in your life. And then even how you approach what you do. Um, and one thing I'll say that I noticed is a big shift is as a result of teaching and, and being on retreat and, and practice is it has created happily, you know, sangha around me or community. Mm. So, you know, folks like you and my deeper friendships with uh kalyana mitra with spiritual friends i mean that landscape of my life like i have very few people in my life who are not practitioners that's not true 15 years ago you know and it's not that i just shook everybody out and was like all right i'm done with you now it's just you know you where you end up spending your time and what you dedicate to and that shared sense of values and as a result um when I've gone through difficult things, loss and um, illness and, you know, the whole, the whole retinue of uh, challenges, I have this community that rises up around me and I can work with those challenges and mm-hmm. it doesn't feel personal um, for very long, at least. And it is this, it really does have that kind of alchemical feel. Where yes, I'm in some really difficult material and I get a hit of how that will translate to greater tenderness and greater understanding mm. on the other side. Mm. The life insurance policy it's kicking
0: in. <laughs>
2: you know I mean, like literally, right? Like my house was robbed, you know, just a month ago and I have an insurance policy and it cannot cover. The emotional weight of losing my late mother's jewelry it can't right that's not you know um i mean it also won't (laughs) there's that part but it's uh you know the material things that we're going to slowly start replacing here that's just that's just not the same as developing a sense or reconnection with a, a caring relationship in my home and feeling supported by others and um that's just been such a huge shift for me to be able to be mm-hmm. with a city um, in such a different way because mm-hmm. of community and also because of the orientation of practice. And, you know, I've really primarily learned practice in, in Tibetan tradition and Vajrayana tradition. So I I can't speak um, to how that is in in all areas. But this idea that the poison is the medicine, that is just unbelievably powerful. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know I love I love the way you talk about connection and community and the importance of spiritual community. I often say and I kind of joke, you know that when Buddhism comes to the so-called west, I don't really like that word, but when it gets transplanted to, you know, especially North American culture, we take refuge in the two jewels, the Buddha and the Dharma. And then we're like, oh, the Sangha, yeah, whatever. We just pay it lip service, but we're not holding it up in equal weight to the Buddha and the Dharma. And it's like, you know, we just, yeah, just from that individualistic culture until like you say, you really notice, and I've noticed that too. And I'm just so lucky to have people in my life that just a hundred percent have my back like you Mm. and just so many close relationships and I can't even imagine not having that and like you you know all the people in my life are some flavor of spiritual practitioner' not necessarily at all Buddhist but some flavor of that and it adds that richness mm. and that and that sense of refuge it's like it really is a refuge and for me equal to, Buddha and the Dharma as a, as a, you know, over time, it didn't feel that way in the beginning either. I kind of just paid it lip service. But over time, you know, when you really realize that those are the people that share, share your worldview, and also really have trained in things like compassion and can show up for you when it's not so much fun, like when you get robbed. Yeah. I wanted to ask a question something that we've talked about that is being talked about in you know the contemplative community the buddhist community and that we've talked about also in ceb and i want to you know shout out you and our colleague ryan are have written a book as the Hmm. first ceb book that's going to be published soon and i had the the great good fortune of being able to look through it and offer some suggestions and you know, there's a lot of discussion about bringing these contemplative practices that have really deep roots in Asian spiritual traditions to the Mm. general public. And there've been in recent years, a lot of critiques about the commodification of mindfulness trainings, for example. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit from your perspective, what are the benefits of this? What are the possible pitfalls of Mm. this approach of taking these practices you know, kind of out of context sometimes. And is there a danger to that or is there a benefit to that?
2: Yeah, there's both, um, of course. And, um, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is what we were just talking about is when the practices are taken almost as like a a unit or like we create meditation as a series of different colored pills that we take at different times of day, let's say. Um, we are missing out on the connective tissue of community. And I think it's not just that it's nice to have people around, that is true, social connection is enormously beneficial for our psychological and physiological well-being. But that when we have other people around, it helps kind of start to soften that self-centered, self-absorbed, self-protective layer that creates so much of our suffering. I was uh, talking with you earlier, Tenzin, about reading the Book of Joy by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and you know that's a theme woven throughout the book. So much of what is an obstacle to our joy, uh, irrespective of how many meditation minutes you've had in your last streak, uh, a big obstacle is really over-identifying with your own sense of well-being, and your own sense of suffering, and your own sense of importance, and It doesn't mean that you don't exist, but when we have more of that collective consciousness, which is in some ways more um, natural in different parts of the world, different cultures within even different cities, that idea of us and not me is so powerful. And I think it's very hard. I haven't seen yet in the kind of commercialization, a really good way of continuing to support the sense of community and interbeing. Um, I think it'll happen for a weekend or a week when people come together on retreat, secular retreat, but it's in terms of the ongoing, it's a very hard thing to do. Um, you know, so I think one of the dangers is we are taking and using these amazing tools, but not really planting them in, in insufficient dirt, right? They're not able to really flourish and really help us. They're ameliorating the, incredible difficulties and stresses of just living in this modern world Um, and then i think a, a worry could be that when folks are not getting maybe a full spectrum picture of what the practices have to offer by practicing in community then they're like yeah that doesn't work i'm gonna stop i'm gonna stop that's yeah i tried it didn't work that kind of giving up too early um you know i do think it's gotten better you know i think 10 years ago In some ways, the practices were really held back by a fear that if they weren't very, very secular, no one would be interested. The rise of research and meditation and loving kindness has increased the bandwidth of meditation to go beyond just following your breath and to include these heart opening practices. Following your breath is amazing. Take it all the way to enlightenment, no problem. But for most people, they need a little bit of that connection and tenderness and and developing the resilience of the heart. So being able to expand what's offered in secular trainings to go beyond a focused attention, I think is a real benefit, um, a really increase. And also it needs to have a a worldview that really will help. One of the things again, His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about in that book of joy and in many books, I'd say every book probably he's ever written is the value of our intention no matter what we're doing, right? If we bring a clear intention into eating a meal, it has a very different impact on our body and on our mind. So I think if we aren't able to have the kind of framework, the ability to invite people to consider what truly matters and set an intention that supports that, then the practice is going to be very superficial, almost as though we're using, you know, a kind of dumbbell weight of 20 or 40 pounds, but only on our right arm. Not strengthening our legs or our left arm, and we get overdeveloped in this ability to maybe focus on our attention. Or, you know, the majority of meditation apps, if you're looking at that format that are out there, are being used for sleep. It's wonderful. Sleep is wonderful. We need it. We actually can't have well being without it. But if that's all we are getting out of our meditation practice, we've missed a lot.
1: Yeah, and kind of following on, you know, taking it even further, is there a danger that some of these practices could be used or are being used in ways that aren't in accordance with ethical values? Like, what's the role of ethics? You know, the, the heart opening practices you mentioned being sort of added on. And, you know, there's sometimes critiques of mindfulness and attentional training being used to support everything from unhealthy lifestyles, like keep meditating, get a 15 minute meditation break so that you can work these unsustainable 80 hour work weeks, all the yeah. way up to attentional training for even, you know, purposes that are not at all in support of well being. So how, yeah, how do you see that conversation?
2: Yeah, <laughs> big sigh. It's just so tough. You know, you create Um, these opportunities or you create these technologies and how people use them is completely out of your control. Um, And so I think, I don't think it's, you know, it is, it just is right. These meditations are being used for um, many, many different things. I do. I have a, a, a sneaking suspicion that if you're practicing heart opening practices, in order to try to work harder or or go to sleep, it starts to impact your behaviors and motivations. Um, I don't think you really can do those and, and not start, because it's not as though meditation creates something new in terms of your understanding of your connection and responsibility to the world. It reveals what's already there. In
1: the beginning, you were talking about how you sort of started down this whole path, initially because of your interest in social justice activism and that Mm. was something that was alive for you it's something that's really important to me also and something you and i have a lot of conversations about and you know some one of the conversations we've been having recently is that sometimes emotions can be seen as a purely personal reaction to what happens around us but one of the things we've been talking about lately is how our emotional life can be so influenced by our social positioning so, for example, if you're a member of a historically marginalized group due to factors like race, class, you know, religion, gender, identity, and expression, or sexual orientation, you could be experiencing kind of constant stressors such as microaggressions mm-hmm. and outright bias that could really influence your emotional life. And I know this is something we tried to bring into the latest CEB teacher training more explicitly. And I'm just, Kind of curious about how this awareness of social structures and how they can impact our emotional life is influencing your work and teaching these days.
2: there's so much depth in this work of learning how to be with the reality of inequality in um, you know North America for sure in the world, but I'll just take where where I live right now and it was interesting to come up as a social worker where that was our curriculum, right? That's part of our core curriculum mm-hmm. is understanding inequalities and awareness of the positionality and power of a social worker, especially in the context of a hospital setting or with child and youth services. Um, and then to have it you know, come also into teaching, it wasn't a direct route. It was almost like there was a, a pause in that awareness and consciousness around teaching, and then to have it become such a core part of the awareness in terms of teaching in dominantly white normative spaces it's I'd have to say it's also it's it's it's, it's tenderizing to the heart. there's so much that needs to be done um, and it's very difficult, you know to know where to grow. you know, I really think in this phase for me it's um, i just continue to keep trying to learn about how white supremacy lives inside of me and in my body everything from my urgency and rigidity and like get it you know get it done and do it and then am i imposing that upon my trainees and my students and how can i you know decolonize my mind
1: mm-hmm. so that
2: that isn't as much a part of how i'm moving through everything you know yeah. And um, and then how that translates directly into the teachings, there's just so many ways. And again, I feel like it has to be, you know, in partnership with with folks who um, have very different lived experiences than me. And totally honestly, sometimes I just feel completely at a loss and uh, embarrassed and confused and. That's how I know I'm probably on the right direction. (laughs) Um, It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, there's no, you know, there's no other way. Um, So just, yeah. And so grateful for folks like yourself um, where we can really have these conversations as, as, you know, embodied white beings and how do we do less harm and how do we move towards greater transformation for ourselves and and those we are fortunate enough to support and lift up and engage with.
0: You're listening to Reflections on Buddhism, KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM on the radio and ksqd.org on the web.
1: You know, last year you organized this amazing event online celebrating the 20th year anniversary of that original destructive emotions, mind and life when you're at the tender, tender age of 20. And then 20 years later, you're organized this amazing conference. And, you know, I know so much thought went into that in terms of picking the speakers and who was going to be presenting and what are some of the things that have changed in terms of new emotions research and new areas that you really wanted to explore in that conference when when it came to choosing the presenters and the speakers for that, 20 years after the original conference.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I just want to start off by really appreciating Susan Bauer wu um, who's the current president of Mind and Life, and she was so on board for this idea in terms of being interested in the content and also just being interested in in exploring new things um, through the conference. And she brought myself and Danny Goldman and Richie Davidson together that we were able to, um, you know, kind of create a shape for the conference and consider presenters and format. And we had wonderful partners with the Awake Network. It's just like a really sweet group of folks who um, are deep in the Dharma and also really get what it takes to have something online feel authentic it's you know I don't know about you but like there's another online summit in my inbox like at least once a month and a lot of (laughs) just like I have like online summit fatigue and you know it's I would have so loved for it to be in person of course and yet you know 500,000 people were there on day one and with that Mm. in mind like how can we show up in a way where you know people feel engaged with the themes and the topics and they feel like they can see themselves represented. So that was definitely a goal for us um, in bringing you know the embodied experience and and expertise of folks who maybe haven't traditionally been included in these contemplative science conversations. It was really rewarding um, that aspect of it. I mentioned Resma and. Um, we also had a wonderful contemplative scholar who looks at the indigenous uh, science of um, uh, science and contemplative science, who um, you know also attends in Uriah. Yeah, and, Uria. uh, mm-hmm, and just, you know, really trying to create these different spaces and places for different lived environments. And, you know, our shared dear friend, Christian Howard really talking about how do you facilitate in, you know, spaces that maybe are alternative, they're queer, or they're disabled, or they're, you know, bringing forth this beautiful array of differences that makes you have to think about how you're teaching and who you are teaching to and how you hold in mind your student even. So I really appreciated that richness. And we also got to really consider the root source of where these teachings are coming from. So the primarily the Tibetan culture and donate a portion of the conference to the preservation of Tibetan culture. And I think that's something I actually learned from my work in um, supporting the, the movement in psychedelics as my hope there is, you know, I did some research and it was really inspiring to see the gains and impact of how people using psychedelics as a treatment for existential distress were able to reconnect with the sense of compassion and connection and, you know, healing at a deep level with forgiveness and um, managing the manifestation of trauma in their lives here and now. And in that world, in the psychedelics world, there is a lot of, maybe not across the board, but a lot of awareness around the appropriation and use of indigenous technologies, indigenous Mm -hmm. ideas, and there is a you know at at worst lip service but i think at best true intention and care about how some can be given back and i think about the you know mindfulness industrial complex you know joking <laughs> but you know the it's a billion dollar industry i'm sure and how are we giving back to yes. the cultures which support it and it's just not a conversation i've heard so to even be part of that and. Help kind of spark that among our participants who are organizing and then come up with this idea and ability to start giving back. Um, It felt really really good.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful. We could talk about emotions for hours. And I know we need to wrap up soon because you've got a busy day ahead of you. But one final thing I'd just love to ask what's next for you? You've had this amazing. Sort of, and as a very young person, relative to me anyway, up until now. But what are you most curious about these days? Where are you going from here in your professional and personal life? I'd just love to hear what's the next big adventure for Eve Ekman.
2: You know, professionally, I really don't know. I had no idea I'd end up in technology. And um, it was you, Tenzin, who convinced me to do it. (laughs) It's all my fault. It's all your fault. You were like, uh, duh, you don't get to choose the ways that you're able to support the most beings possible. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I didn't apply for that job. They um, kind of headhunted me, for lack of a better word. And the opportunity to reach a billion people who hold phones is really compelling. And the problems and opportunities of technology feel very dear to me. Um, I also just am so clear that teaching is my my first love. And I feel like it's what I really have to offer to the world. So figuring out ways to continue to offer that, like I mentioned, through UC Berkeley at their center for the science of psychedelics, which again, it's not my field. It's not my, my my home team. And yet I'm so impressed and really admire the work going on among those therapies and feel like meditation could truly be a benefit as a practice done before and after, and really to extend some of the gains we see in in that research. I'm really longing for a longer retreat, so moving into the personal. Um, I, I just have had just such incredible education through personal practice, and there's just no equivalent. And, you know, even I <clears throat> recently heard Richie Davidson talk about that the difference between meditation hours practiced on retreat and meditation hours practiced you know in your daily life a significant impact on your overall well-being and all these other metrics and measures like retreat time is precious mm. uh, so that's definitely calling to me and i will say that i in the last i guess now year i have just had this new opening and interest into uh, I, I don't quite know what to call it, but interest in the more than human world and deepening my relationship with uh, the natural world. And as a result of that, you know, some of the readings I've been doing, um, David Abrams, The Spell of the Sensuous and Kim Stanley Robinson writing Ministry of the Future and uh, The Overstory, which both of us loved by Richard Powers and and starting to kind of be able to um make my way to like a eco psychology. And Mm. I, you know, I have no idea if that will go beyond my personal practice, but it's feeling very rich in my personal practice to, you know, I've very fortunate. I grew up uh, very near the natural world. My parents had a place up in Inverness. I still spend time there and Tenzin, you have your honorary bed there. and (laughs) um, I just have felt, you know, awe, humility, joy, connection in the natural world and kind of taking it for granted. Mm. And so I feel like it's moving more towards not just a an appreciation, but like a kinship. And, Beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And so that feels really like a really rich area for me. And like, how does that relate to my Dharma? And, you know, Buddha never yeah. slept indoors, right? There, yeah. You, you <laughs> woke up under a tree on the earth. So it just, you know, there's other writers who've who've explored this area, but it's new for me. So I'm just really enjoying that.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I read this beautiful essay, and I can't even remember who wrote it now, about a Buddhist scholar about how every significant life event of Lord Buddha happened under a tree. Mm -hmm. He was born under a tree. And then when he was 12 Mm -hmm. years old, he was sitting under the rose apple tree and had the realization, obviously, enlightened under a tree passed away under a tree like how this Mm. you know it was no accident that every major life event happened in the natural world specifically under a tree and I just love that and yeah you and I have definitely been talking about this exploration I wanted to mention another book we both loved braiding sweet grass by Robin Wall Kimmerer too is another one on the list that you mentioned and all of all of those ones. And that's, yeah, that's been an area of curiosity for me. I think we've kind of simultaneously been delving into that more than human world aspect and trying mm-hmm. to see how it relates to our spiritual paths. Is there anything else that as we bring our wonderful conversation to a close, is there anything else you'd like to share with our wonderful audience
2: just, you know, Tenzin, you and I have talked a lot about burnout and I feel like from our students, uh, our respective students, our, our shared students, this idea of like, how do we keep our heart open amid all the pain in the world Mm. so much. And, um, I'll say that just meaningful connection and, and talking with you about what really matters, um, it helps, like, kind of reconnect to that sense of, I don't know, like, purpose and and what we're here yeah. for. And yeah. it is it is so urgent and so important. And people want these, you know, very specific and elegant answers to it. But I, I think that really having a sense of meaning and purpose is is so crucial. And so I I'm appreciating you for giving me this moment. I oh. uh, otherwise pretty busy day to, um, to really feel that.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. This will be available as a radio show later on as a podcast. I'm so excited for many people to benefit from your wisdom and from this conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tenzin.